Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. My phone rang. It was one of those phones that was still attached to the wall. It was fall of 2003, and I'm dating myself a little bit, but that was my freshman year of college down at Milligan College in Tennessee. And at that time, every dorm room still came with a phone attached to the wall. And so the phone rings, and it's the second day of school. Classes haven't started yet. And I start talking to the person on the other end like I know them. So my roommate gives me this really confused look. I cover up the mouthpiece, and I say, it's a with a smile about two sizes too big. And he looks back at me equally confused as he is impressed. And well, long story short, I met this girl the spring prior on my high school visit. We saw each other in the bookstore and one thing led to another. And before you knew it, my second day on campus, I'm out on a late night walk with this girl. And in a couple moments of misguided passion, I kissed this girl and then proceeded to ignore her for the rest of the semester. Remember, classes hadn't even started yet, and some of you might laugh this off. Oh, that's just college. That's just growing up. But for me, that was just the beginning. See, right before I met this other girl, I had been in the lobby with a girl that I had just met before, and I was hanging out with her, and for the very uncool, very nervous high school kid that I was, it looked like college might be a different chapter in the book. Something happened that night that had never happened to me before. I was wanted. I was desired. Girls liked me. And a terrible thing happened. I knew it. I realized it to be true. And a rush to the brain that night quickly became an ego trip. And realization became knowledge, which became a drive for attention, unlike anything I had ever seen before. And wouldn't you know it, the job that I just so happened to randomly land on campus was with the landscaping team. Now, I really did legitimately enjoy this job, but this was a job that was outside that was able to get me to be seen where I could sweat and wear cutoff t-shirts and expose the muscles that I don't have to try to impress all the girls on campus. Little do I know, it fed right into an ego that was growing faster than I could keep up with. It started to manifest itself in small ways. At first, I randomly got the right landscaping job at the right time. I'm a smart kid. I knew when classes got over and when they started, so I happened to be in the buildings or right around the buildings where classes started and where classes ended so that the girls could see me as they passed and went to class. I would pretend that the mower had a problem just so I could fake fix it because I thought that made me look good. Um, in the early mornings, when the grass was still wet, I would mow the grass. And of course, when nobody was looking, I would take that grass, I would crumple it up in my hands, and I would squeeze it. And the dew, combined with the mowing process, would kind of bleed out green. And I thought it made me look more tough. So I had this green, like, sweat kind of thing on my hands and on my arms. And I would go down to lunch, and I would plop down next to somebody, and I would brag about how great campus looked when I was really 
just secretly trying to be seen. Then the worst thing of all happened. My ploy worked, and it worked way too well. Girls started talking about me. They knew who I was. I was told that they were talking about me in the dorms, and this ego trip took off into a form of identity, and I craved and I lived based off of people's opinions. Uh, one girl gave, this is embarrassing, I'm sorry. One girl gave me sweatbands that had little monkeys on them, and so I decided I would quit wearing a shirt when I was working landscaping, and I put the sweatbands with the little mon monkeys right here on my biceps. It's really embarrassing, and I think I just need to take a time out for a minute and say, who the heck do I think I was? Like, I was an arrogant little punk uh, to keep it PC. We will say that. Uh, like, look at me, guys. When I flex, do you know what happens? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens. Like, my bones stick out a little bit further, and that is it. I seriously needed somebody to just punch me in the face and tell me I was not nearly as cool as I thought I was which Michael, our lead pastor, would have done for me, except for the fact that he didn't show up on campus two years later. So I started hanging out with girls as fast as I could. Girls, plural. I didn't care if they knew. I was so arrogant, I legitimately thought they wouldn't care if they knew that I was hanging out with somebody else because they wouldn't want to hang out with me that badly. Thankfully, nothing physical ever happened beyond just kissing the girls, because after that, I didn't care. It was a mental buzz. It was the excitement and the rush. And once that was over, it was on to the next, and on to the next, and on to the next. And the cycle repeated, and in a very small school where word travels much faster than you think it was, a little did I know that the girls in the dorms were actually talking about me, but not in such flattering terms all of a sudden. I was being labeled as a player. Girls on campus were growing increasingly disgusted with me, rightfully so. They said he's all talk and no commitment. Don't give in to the smooth first encounter. He doesn't actually care about you. Stay away from him. And as we'll discover in a few minutes, the identity that I embraced embraced me right back. Today, as you know, we're starting a new series called DNA, and we are looking at the DNA of the church. We're looking at three various aspects of our DNA as individuals and as collective church. We're going to focus on three things, worship, community, and engagement. And by engagement, we simply mean how we are involved in the community. And here at Collective, if something doesn't fall within those three things, then we don't do it. And those three things are on purpose. They're intentional. They're not just made up. They mirror the life of Jesus, as you'll see in this DNA series. And today we're kicking that off by talking about collective worship. And think about the series of the title for just a minute. DNA is a very interesting word. Also, how we use it is interesting. You talk about an athlete, you say she or he, when the game is on the line, they are really clutch. It's in their DNA. Just yesterday, my wife and I went to Pennsylvania, spent a lot of time with her extended family, and one of the biggest topics of conversation was snacking and how much their family liked to snack. And she looks back at me and she says, see, it's in my DNA. 
When we talk about DNA, the majority of the time, we don't talk about deoxyribonucleic acid, which is its true and scientific term. We use DNA to describe identity. Identity is very deep and complex, but all too often when we talk about ourselves, we say name, we say job status, we say family status, and maybe one thing about who we are for fun. But the deep stuff, who we are at our core, all that is off limits. But identity goes deeper than mood swings, musical interests, or job titles. And to put it simply, identity, according to one of the textbooks that I teach out of, is who a person is. That is identity, the definition. This is formed by many things, family, cultural expectations, societal norms, friends, social economic status, race, religion. The list goes on and on. But today, what we want to look at is how can you, your identity, match the identity of Jesus? How can Jesus become a part of your DNA, specifically through this idea of worship? We call what we do here on Sunday mornings collective worship. It is the idea that we come together to honor God. We honor God through singing. We honor God through learning about the Bible and what it has to teach us. We honor God through taking communion, remembering the sacrifice that he made for us, and we honor God by trusting him with our finances. That is collective worship. And as you see, worship doesn't just have to be a song like the stereotype is that we associate it with. Worship, the word worship actually comes from worth-ship, meaning to give worthy to something or somebody. So when we say collective worship, we mean that God is worthy to be praised. And anything that acknowledges God is a form of worship. So whether you love Jesus or whether you've been burned by the church and you swore off religion forever, but here you are somehow giving religion a second chance, how can you let your identity grow and how can your DNA grow into the person that Jesus is through worship? What's cool is when we shape it like that is we all have room to grow. Everybody in the room can grow and we can learn to reflect the life of Jesus in our own lives. We're talking about a topic that is relevant for everybody in the room. The passage that we want to look at today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6. We're going to read verses 12 through 16 together. Verse 12 says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he had designated apostles then it gives the list, Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. What's really interesting when you look at this passage is what you look at when you look at the surrounding context beyond just these verses, what comes before and what comes after. Just to give you a bird's eye view of chapter 5, Jesus is healing people. He's eating with a tax collector who would have been a known sinner and hated in that culture. And he was also being questioned by a group of people called the Pharisees. Think of Pharisees as the religious leaders of the day. That's who the Pharisees were. Contrast that with chapter 6. This is where Jesus begins to teach on a multitude of topics. The Bible says that a large crowd gathered and assembled before Jesus. And yes, he did healing, but he also began to teach. 
The transition is subtle but important because our passage comes sandwiched right in between those two things. And in chapter 5, there's no evidence of teaching in the context of speaking to a large crowd. Jesus is questioned. He had dinner and he healed, but he didn't start preaching. Dinners and being questioned are not prepared statements. They can't be conversation and responses happen off the cuff. You can't actively prepare for that. But public speaking, prepared speaking, is different. It requires preparation. And the most important part of all of this that gives us a big clue as to Jesus and who his identity was through and his DNA is found in verse 12 of chapter 6 says, one of those nights, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. I know when I prepare to speak in settings like this, unfortunately, my first response is usually not to pray. And if I do, it's for a minute or two before I get started with content. But if you look at the example of Jesus, my ratio of time and prayer compared to presentation is directly opposite of what Jesus teaches. Jesus spent all night praying to God. And my first response is like, yo, that's crazy. How in the world do you pray all night? Like, that's impossible. I try to pray before I go to bed, and then I make it about 37 seconds before I fall asleep. But Jesus did this in preparation for the beginning of his public prepared speaking. He spent hours with God. And what's crazy to me is Jesus probably didn't need to. I mean, I'm assuming here a little bit, but like, come on. The guy is Jesus after all. If anybody can speak about who God is, I believe Jesus could do it without having to pray about it. But Jesus made it a priority to spend time with God in worship. The identity that he embraced embraced him right back. And if that sounds familiar, it's a connection to my freshman year at Milligan College. My identity embraced me right back. What I mean is people began to associate me with the lifestyle that I had created. I set my own trap and people noticed that. And you may say, come on, man, it's not that big of a deal. You're 18, you kissed a girl, you're just figuring life out. That's a part of college. Like, it's okay, it's not that big a deal. It wouldn't be a big deal except for talk to some of the people that I graduated with still to this day and see what they say about me. Hope that dude grew up. Don't know how he got some girl to marry him. How'd he get so lucky? Guarantee it was never going to be me. It wouldn't be a big deal except for the fact that I never went out on a single date all four years of college. By my junior and senior year, I like to think that I'd matured a little bit, but even the fact of trying to get a date was a little bit like, good luck. I was involved in a few more things, but maybe that involvement just kept me busy from facing the reality that I had created. It wouldn't be a big deal, except for 12 years later, this stigma was still following me. Guys, think about 12 years. 12 years ago, American Idol was still cool and relevant in society. 12 years after my freshman girl, I worked up the courage. I walked up to a girl and I said, hey, I would like to take you out on a date. And she said, no, I think you're a player. 
She was a little nicer about it than that, but that's basically what she said. She said, no, you are a player. By the way, me and this girl did not go to college together. We didn't even live in the same geographic region of America. I didn't even know who this girl was when I was in college, and she still found out that I was a player. It's a small world, and the world travels fast, even to a Maryland girl. And it wouldn't be a big deal except that Maryland girl is a girl named Rachel who happens to be right out here, one of the leaders of our connections team who happens to be Rachel, my wife. The only reason she gave me a shot for our first date is because another friend of hers named Maggie who sings in our band here called her and convinced her to give me a shot and she convinced her that I had changed. And it wouldn't be a big deal except for the fact that Rachel is not in the room here right now. As far as you know, she's out in the lobby leading our connections team, getting ready for after service, but you haven't been privy to the conversations and the tears leading up to today when I said, hey, I want to share this part of my life with our church. See, it is a big deal because the person that I'm spending the rest of my life with doesn't like that chapter in my life. And I don't either, for the record. And for 12 years, that reputation, my identity, dogged me until Rachel was convinced to give me another chance. I became wrapped up in who I was rather than in who Jesus is. Simply put, the identity you embrace has consequences. The identity that you embrace has consequences, and consequences doesn't just mean negative things. It means what happens after the actions you take. It's the reaction. And so contrast my consequences with the the life and the story of Jesus. Jesus embraced worship. He wanted to spend time with God. His identity came from God and God alone. And he didn't have to chase after the superficial in the form of what girl this week thought what she thought about me and did she think I was cool and did she like me? He didn't have to chase after that because his identity and his DNA was rooted in who God said that he was. And that happened because Jesus intentionally spent time in worship with God. He made that a priority. In every sermon, it's important to do what we have just been doing for the last few minutes, to learn more about the Bible, to grow in conceptual knowledge, to be able to learn facts about the Bible to help us grow. But the next step is to connect that content to our own lives. It's something that's called application. So as we move into application, there are a few things that stick out to me. Number one, how often are you here? How often are you here? Sunday morning, 10.30 a.m., West Frederick Middle School. I don't know how to tell you this other than just telling you. It is important that you be here. If you're a high school, middle school student, if you're at Hood College, or if you're at FCC, it is important that you are here every Sunday. If you're a young adult figuring out life, growing into the craziness of job and kids and family, it is important that you are here every Sunday. If you're growing up and if your kids are growing up and you're seeing them move out of the house and now you have grandkids in your life and you're moving into the next stage of life, it is important 
that you are here on Sunday morning. And we have said this before, if collective is not the right church for you, for whatever reason, that is fine. We are not going to be offended because we care more about the fact that you spend eternity with Jesus than the fact that you get to do that here. We care about who you are more than we care about this place. And I know I'm biased. I admit I am biased, but I believe collective is that church where you can be every Sunday. It is a great place to be, a place that's worth your time, a place where you should show up week in and week out and not just show up, but get to be here and excited to be here. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's easy for you to say, Mr. I can't tell if you're a volunteer or if you're on paid staff and it's really easy for you to be here. Of course you're here. Your wife's here. You guys love it here. You have community here. You have kids here. It's really easy for you. That's not my story. That may not be your story, but I'm telling you that my story of finding belonging and a place where I can worship can become your story as well. Try five. Commit to being here for five weeks in a row. See what happens. When you come, I believe you're going to experience grace and truth. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be supported. You get to experience authentic worship so that your DNA, your identity, can grow closer to the heart of Jesus so that you can then go be Jesus to the people you encounter during the week. It is important for you to be here. The second point is your relationship with God should be more than Sunday at 10.30 a.m. I would even venture to say If this is all your relationship with God is, you're never going to have a good view of who God is. When I was 24, I went to a conference called Passion in Atlanta, Georgia, and there are many, many thousands of young people who gather there, and the who's who of Christian speakers and Christian bands, which, yes, there is a real thing out there. The who's who of Christian speakers and Christian bands do exist. They all gathered in Atlanta, Georgia for like a big three-day-long church service kind of thing, and I went as well. I was intent on listening to a woman named Beth Moore. She was one of the speakers. I followed her on Twitter. She has really awesome, challenging things to say, and I wanted to listen to this woman speak. The only problem was she was only speaking to all the women at the conference. Everything goes back to girls, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, So I have this decision to make, and so I decided I snuck into the auditorium, sat in the very top row in a section all by myself in the dark, and I listened to this woman, Beth Moore, because I wanted to hear her speak so badly. And she said something that has stuck with me for a decade, and I imagine will for the rest of my life. She said, if this, meaning this passion conference, if this is the best your relationship with God will ever get, you're going to have a crappy view of who God is, and you're going to have a crappy relationship with Jesus. This is not the culmination. This should never be all your relationship with God is. Jesus often started his day his ministry, all the trials, joys, and tribulations that came with that in a time of worship. Jesus spent time with God. There are so many things that you can do to add to the richness of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Pray, listen to God, listen to other sermons, listen to previous sermons that we have done here, read your Bible, read a devotional, grab a friend and pray, read a devotional together with somebody and talk about it. Michael often says, start with the book of John, 
I don't particularly like John. I find it to be a little bit wordy and confusing. I like Luke because he is more practical for a practically minded person. Find something that fits you, that interests you, and dig in and get started. Because your relationship with God should be more than just Sunday at 10.30 a.m. And finally, the more serious you get about your relationship with God, the more you need to spend time with him. I know I'm beating a drum here, but Jesus, the son of God who was perfect, who committed no sin and did no wrong, invested full nights spending time with God in worship. And here's the thing about Jesus. When he was alive and in the 2,000 years since then, nobody was more directly involved with people in ministry than Jesus was. His life was people. He didn't have a home. Crowds followed him wherever he went. He was constantly healing, teaching, and preaching. And when he wasn't with people, the thing that you could find him doing, oftentimes, waking up early in the morning before the sunrise to go spend time with his father and worship. If you don't believe in God and you don't have a relationship with him, then there is no reason for you to spend any time with God. However, I want to challenge you, if that is where you are today, God wants to spend time with you. God is worthy, worthship of your time. The more you grow in your faith, and if you call yourself a Christian, if you follow Jesus, the closer you grow to the heart of Jesus, the more you need to spend time with him and follow his example. It can be really easy to think, I know a lot about the Bible. I've been a Christian for 20 years. My dad is a preacher, and he has been since before I was born, decades and decades of going to service after service after service and listening to so much stuff about the Bible. It can be really easy for me to say, no, I'm good. I got this. But that attitude is 100% wrong because the further you grow in your faith, the more that people depend on you. The more you are sought out for leadership and answers, the more you are seen as a role model. Simply put, the more people need you, the more you need to spend time with God. So as we finish today, I want to just quickly wrap up and mention those three application points again. You being here matters much more than you think it does. You being here matters much more than you think it does. But if this is the best your relationship with Jesus gets, what we're doing right here now, you're never going to have a great view of who Jesus is and who he can be in your life. The more serious you become about following God, the more you need to spend time with him. Let's pray. God, we do love you. We thank you for being a God who listens to us and who gives us the example that we can follow. How great, how joyful, and how important it is to spend time with you. We thank you that we get to do this here in this building, in this space, 1030 every Sunday. It's a privilege to get to spend time with you. I hope that we all walk away from here learning more about how we can grow into the person that you are and the person that you were when you lived on this earth. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.